It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, we're discussing how the media is covering Trump, covering Trump, the problem of plagiarism and the arrival of the New York Times in Australia. Joining me in the studio is senior writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and former US correspondent Nick O'Malley. Hi, Nick. Hi. On the line is BuzzFeed's Indigenous reporter, Alan Clark. Hi, Alan. Hi. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Miriam Robin, who is newly appointed markets reporter for the Fairfax Titles. Hi, Miriam. Hey. We're live tweeting, and we can put your questions to the panel. Our Twitter handle is FourthEstateAU. We're reaching the end of the second week of the Trump administration, and there's certainly no shortage of things to talk about. I want to start with the reporting of Trump's controversial executive order to stop citizens of seven countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, from entering the USA. On Monday, the Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief, Jared Baker, issued a directive to journalists in his newsroom to stop using the phrase Muslim-majority countries because it didn't accurately reflect the reasons they were banned. According to the executive order, the seven countries were selected because they were on a list of countries that posed a risk to national security compiled by Congress and the Obama administration. While Baker may be technically correct, he has been strongly criticised for whitewashing what has been happening and for being too soft on Trump. Nick, I want to start with you. Should journalists stop using the term Muslim-majority countries when referring to this and instead use something like countries that pose a threat to national security? Uh, I, I think it's. I don't think this is a really difficult question. Um, you don't invent things. So we can go by what the executive order says and we can talk about how Trump and the State Department has talked about those countries. And they're selected not because they have any sort of terrorism. They're selected because they have, uh, because they suspect, or the State Department and Trump's administration suspects, that they have um, a higher rate of Muslim extremist terrorism. I think we just use their language. We don't have to invent our own. So I I probably wouldn't have gone with uh, the Wall Street Journal's wording. You just stick to their wording. So Baker has also said that he is uncomfortable with using the word liar or lying in relation to Trump because in doing so it would ascribe moral intent. The definition of a lie being that it's a false statement intended to deceive. And indeed this is a generally accepted journalistic convention not to use the word lie because a person might be mistaken or misinformed and not intentionally deceiving. But when Trump says things like that he saw thousands of Muslims celebrating after 9-11 or that 1.5 million people attended his inauguration, both statements that have been proven to be wrong, um, Miriam, I'll throw to you, do you think that considering the way that Trump speaks, that there might be times when it would be acceptable for journalists to describe his statements as lies? I mean, I think describing someone as lying or describing a statement as false or incorrect are, are sort of questions about, you know, shades of how you describe something and, and the tone you use with your readers. And I think different publications will, will make different decisions largely based on how they normally talk to their readers and the kind of tone they take throughout their journalism more broadly. I mean, I think more populist outlets might use the word lie and, and you know, more highbrow ones might just say that he's wrong. And I think, you know, every newsroom will, will come down differently on this issue. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it I think essentially the readers will take out the same thing at the end of the day, that Trump is loose with the truth and, and either doesn't care or 
you know, willfully misrepresents it, depending on, you know, how much credit you give him. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's largely a matter of style. Most media organisations tell their journalists not to attend political demonstrations or publicly express political opinions. Alan, given the current political climate, do you think that that is fair for journalists in the States? I think it's incredibly uh, yeah. important that journalists do get to rallies and when there is such an outpouring of uh, you know, people on the streets in the US and, and movements that seemingly have sprung up, I think it's incredibly important to get amongst it. Uh, BuzzFeed have you know, several reporters constantly um, on the streets talking to people and I think this, these are extraordinary times. Uh, Trump's presidency has, you know, brought out protests like we've never, like like we haven't seen in decades. So I think, you know, in terms of the current climate, it, it's very important that journalists get out there, get amongst the people, and actually, you know, sort of take the pulse as it were on the streets. But what if they're protesting? Well, I think. Sorry, I don't know if I'm meant to interrupt like as that. Well, I mean, the, the, I think it's important to go out and also speak with protests. I mean, I'm in. I'm the Indigenous Affairs reporter for BuzzFeed. I mean, to say that I can't go to a protest or I shouldn't go to a protest as a journalist and speak with people about their grievances is just outrageous. Often that's the only way that people uh, in minorities or, or uh, vulnerable groups can actually be heard. So, yeah, I, I take that as a, as a responsibility, as my job. All right. Well, the Reuters editor, Steve Adler, also published a message to his staff this week with advice on how to report Trump. One point that he gave to reporters was not to make themselves the story. Nick, do you think we've been reading too much about Trump's relationship with the media and this is just a distraction from the more important issues? We probably have been, uh, and I think it's been annoying readers and audiences. That said, I don't necessarily point the finger at the reporters who've been doing this because Trump has made the media the story. Trump is quite consciously and deliberately making the, the media his opposition because he hasn't got one in the Democratic Party at the moment. They hold no power. Um, so it's very difficult for journalists to do their job, to report on what is in fact going on in the administration when the administration is jumping up and down talking about journalism and journalists. Just today, there are reports that CNN is being frozen out by the White House. That has to be reported. But there must be some balance, of course. And I think that the role of the media has been problematic ever since Trump arrived as a, as a legitimate force in American politics. And we need to be co- cognizant of that. You're listening to For the State. You're listening to For the State and you're with me, Olivia Rosenman. I'm speaking to Alan Clark, Nick O'Malley and Miriam Robin. Freelance journalist Ginger Gorman recently spoke out against both the Daily Mail and Mamma Mia for plagiarising an in-depth article that she had published on news.com.au. The article was the result of a long and harrowing investigation into a particular kind of sexual abuse. It's not the first time that this has happened. In fact, in 2014, News Corp brought a legal action against the Daily Mail for plagiarising its content. Ginger Goldman said that one reason plagiarism is so common these days is that modern newsrooms are digital sweatshops. Uh, Nick, would you agree with that characterisation? Uh, it's been a while since I had to work as a junior journalist, but I think, yeah, I think the time pressures on, on especially more junior reporters are incredibly intense. Um, but this isn't plagiarism the way we used to describe plagiarism. Plagiarism used to be when you stole a quote without attribution or stole someone's work. This is a business model based on wholesale theft. 
and it's it's just not on. It's not okay. It needs to be. I think this show is great for raising the issue. It needs to be discussed uh, a lot more. I think. I mean, I, I would agree with that. I think at times it seems as if the, that there are some news organisations that are just in a frantic race to produce more and more content. Um, it's, it's an increasingly desperate chase of online audiences. Do you think, Miriam, that perhaps this might get worse before it gets better as these kinds of news organisations grow? I kind of think this is the, the natural outcome of, um, of you know... <laughs> Of, of digital publishing. I mean, if if you're able to immediately take someone's content, and you know, often the Daily Mail will tell stories in a in a you know more splashy, arguably more compelling way than the original, and they can do this legally through you know just taking the quotes and attributing. And uh, you know, I mean, there's no good reason, there's no good economic reason why this wouldn't keep working for them. I guess in the in the very long term, it, it would hollow out journalism. It would reduce the returns for original journalism for everyone else. But um, I, I don't really see a solution. And, and I mean, I think I think maybe if if we get to a stage where where ad revenues collapse such that outlets like the Daily Mail uh, are no longer sustainable just because they can't even make advertising revenues and and everyone has to go behind a paywall and rely on subscription revenues, then maybe you get a different style of journalism taking root because uh, someone won't subscribe, I don't think, to to have stories that aren't original to some extent, or I hope they will only subscribe for original stories. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I just I don't really see how this is a, a problem that can be solved right now. Um, Alan, in a letter to Mamma Mia, Gorman wrote that ripping off other journalists' work risks losing sources' trusts and making it harder to to find people that are willing to open up to journalists. Do you agree with that? Do you think that we should be focusing more on, on that aspect of the story? Completely. And I think uh, in Ginger's case, I mean, it's kind of, uh, as Nick was saying, wholesale, um, you know, kind of, plagiarism it's it's insane because it is an investigative piece that you know, any journalist know takes a lot of time a lot of uh building trust um and to have all of that taken off you must be devastating but i i you know i've seen it in my own career particularly in the indigenous community building uh sources over a very long time um earning trust publishing it and then having it uh i guess what they call juiced which is sort of you know, take the take the original story and then sort of twist it and you juice out the essence of it and and put it out there. And uh, it has burnt a lot of bridges my, in my own sources, and uh, that's happening a lot more in digital newsrooms. And um, you know, at BuzzFeed, we are a digital newsroom, but we, you know, we're not. Uh, our readers they don't want that. They don't want wholesale plagiarism they want original journalism they're smart they're savvy they're young um, they're engaged in politics so often we you know we resist the lure of say a story of the day that seems to be trending or on social media um, you know and rather than actually go in there and just sort of you know take it and 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 just not really do any original reporting on it we we try to find a different angle on it um, one that our audience and our readers would um, would enjoy reading and so i think that's our model and it can be successful um and it is for us so um you know but sadly for some organizations like the daily mail um they're just pumping out 
a lot of um, other people's work without sometimes attribution. I think that's entirely legitimate, Alan. To to look at a big breaking story and find your own way into it is what we're meant to be doing. Yeah. Uh, and that and that can often mean taking uh, some facts which some reporter has got a break on and clearly attributing it to them while you continue working your own sources. Look at the story about the Trump phone call with Turnbull. It would be it would be professional misconduct for a news editor not to be grabbing that Washington Post story, ripping the guts out of it, and then unleashing his or her own, her own reporters onto it. But right at the outset, when someone else has the jump on you, sure, you, you take the, the bones of that and you start oh, working oh. on it. That's perfectly course, professional. Daily news, we do that. I mean, mm. I'm not on the road you know, um, every day of the year. And obviously when there are big stories, a good example is Dylan Voller's um, hearing in the Supreme Court in Darwin. I am not in Darwin, but I'm able to take other people's stories and give them attribution and, and refer back to them and link back to, say, the ABC or whoever. It's mm. completely valid. But what I'm saying is yeah, um, without attribution or just sort of taking it, which is what the Daily Mail has done in this case, is just completely, um, you know, horrible. I mean, in the Daily Mail's defence, these days they do attribute and they link in the third part generally is where they try and get mm. it from. But, you know, publishers say that doesn't really mean much. You know, they still get all the traffic and not that many people click through. But, um, yeah, I guess it just depends to, to what extent you're advancing the story. And, mm. and you know, once once you've taken the guts out of someone else's story, are you leaving it there or are you then actually trying to push it forward, which... Um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of digital outlets don't really try and do anything more with a story other than do someone else's work. So, Nick, as, as a senior member of a newsroom, do you think that part of the problem is that these junior reporters don't actually have their skills to find original stories? Uh, Robert Burton Bradley wrote in Crikey that... He thinks that uh, on-the-job training has been reduced to basic CMS proficiency. Is that something that you see? Would you agree? Uh, look, it's not something I've seen in the newsrooms I've worked in. I've been lucky to work in newsrooms, in Fairfax newsrooms, where there's still a, an emphasis on training. But I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that among uh, other reporters on the road. Um, there was a case with a Yahoo reporter who was totally ill-equipped to be reporting on court uh, on, a, on a court story and got herself in all sorts of trouble over recent weeks. Now, I actually feel for her. She had no idea what she was doing wrong. She shouldn't have been reporting on courts. Uh, so clearly, in some newsrooms, there is not enough training, and it does reflect the fact that the business model is collapsing. Uh, and there's a lot more pressure on a lot fewer staff, and often junior staff, to provide a lot more content. So, yeah, it is a problem. But it needn't be. You can manage a, you can manage a newsroom better than that, if you choose to. Well, uh, perhaps I'll open this uh, question up to all of you. Is there a solution to this problem, and, and what is it? <laughs> you were looking at me. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I, I outlined before why I'm a, a complete pessimist on this issue. Um, I mean, I just think it, what, what this type of um, juicing is, it's legal, and it makes economic sense. It makes no moral sense. And it's bad for journalism. It's bad for the people relying on journalists to tell their stories responsibly. But I, I just, in the short term, I just, I mean, apart from moral pressure, maybe, but you know what, people have been slamming the Daily Mail about this for, for years and years. You know, I think perhaps 
a little bit unfairly because it is a much wider problem than the Daily Mail. You know, many more outlets do it. But anyway, the Daily Mail is the the totemic outlet that does this. and, And, you know, three years of bashing them up hasn't really done anything to stop it. Alan, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I think Miriam's right. I mean, the, the it's so rife in the industry now because of the, the this rise of online online media um, and this sort of never-ending hunger for for um, social media posts and and news and online. You know, this kind of twenty-four-hour news cycle, and you know, it is very hard. A lot of younger people. Um, uh, as Nick was saying, you know, are coming into the industry and they don't get training. I was lucky enough to have a traineeship and also work at ABC and, and really um, be able to hone some of those skills. But often they're just starting and they're paid terribly and they're forced to, you know, kind of cover an enormous amount of stories in a day without leaving an office um, just to get by. And they have no idea of actually um, that that's not normal. So a lot of these younger journalists, they're just grateful to have a job and they're not really doing what they're meant to, and, but they don't, they don't understand the problem with it. So I think, um, you know, apart from moral, you know, pressure or sort of, you know, publicly chiding publications or journalists about it, I mean, there's very little you can do. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Alan Clark from BuzzFeed, Miriam Robin from the Fairfax Titles, and Nick O'Malley from the Sydney Morning Herald. Late last year, the New York Times confirmed that they are opening a bureau here in Australia. And last week, they launched a newsletter product and began recruiting for newsroom roles. The move is part of the Times' $50 million three-year strategy to grow a subscriber base outside the U.S., and the response has been mixed. While some have cheered the arrival of the Times and its strong reputation of hard-hitting investigations, others have said the arrival is a bad thing for Australia's flailing newspaper landscape. Nick, do you think the New York Times arrival will be a good or bad thing for Australian newspapers? Oh, look, nobody really wants more competition, but I don't think that they're going to have a huge commercial impact. And I'm not an, I'm not an expert in the commercial side of this business, but... My gut feeling is that the problems that the old brands are having is not is not lack of eyes. We have more readers now than we've ever had. What we have is a business model that isn't working, uh, dependent on a combination of of paywalls and advertising. The Times is not going to disrupt that a lot. Um, as a news consumer, I'm excited to have the New York Times, though I'm not yet fully... I still can't work out exactly what they're planning on doing. They, they have a similar model in the UK, which... To me, it just looks like a, a much larger bureau. Uh, so I look forward to seeing how it unrolls here. Uh, you mentioned about um, subscribers, and I think you're right. I think Australians don't pay for news as much as perhaps in other countries, especially the United States. Uh, do you think the New York Times might might be able to crack Australians, make them open their wallet finally to pay for news? Well, look, maybe they will, but I think that a lot of Australians would be opening their wallet to buy the New York Times so they can cover Trump, so they can read Trump news from the United States. Um, So far, what the New York Times has done here, it reminds me of what happened when other big brands first arrived here, like BuzzFeed, like uh, The Guardian. We've seen some pretty high-powered, I've seen one video of a very high-powered New York Times reporter tasting Vegemite. I've seen stories about camel treks. It's not 
really of great interest so far to Australians, except for the one big investigation or, or piece they did on the ground for Marnus, which I thought was great reporting. Um, so I don't think we know yet. But yeah, if I was consuming here, I'd be more interested in the times for what they can bring me from America than what they can provide from Australia. Well, in fact, the, the newly appointed Bureau Chief, uh, Damien Cave, has said that the paper's not planning to compete on local coverage, but will instead focus on the kind of in-depth reportage of issues that the New York Times is famous for. For example, as you mentioned, um, the the their piece from Manus Island mm. where one of their reporters actually defied the press ban um, and reported from from there. Miriam, do you think that the New York Times will improve uh, the quality of in-depth Australian stories that are told? Um, I don't think I don't think it's going to tell them more in depth than Australian outlets do. I mean it's going to have it's advertising for around half a dozen positions uh, which is you know, it's enough to, to, you know, make it about the size of, of one of the, the smaller Australian news outlets. I mean, I used to work at Crikey. It's about the size of a Crikey, which, you know, you wouldn't say is, you know, the dominant newsmaker in Australia. If there's a big story, one of the majors will, will get on it and push it forward. I mean, I think what the, um, what the New York Times will do, and, and this is something Damien Cave has spoken about, is, uh, is integrate Australia into its coverage of global issues. And, and on this, I actually think it's, it's quite exciting I think that there's a lot of stories these days that that take place across many countries that are global in nature and that are really best told with an eye to how they affect the rest of the world as well. The the Panama Papers, I mean, stories like that. And and what the what Damien Cave talks about is is bringing you know an Australian factor to the New York Times' global coverage and. I think often Australia uh, can can be unaware of how things that are going on in, in our own borders uh, relate to things around the world. And, and I think if the New York Times brings a, a more global perspective on Australia, well, that, I think that would be a really good thing for Australian readers, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. Alan, would you like to see the New York Times reporting Indigenous issues? Do you think that they would do a good job? Uh, I would like to see them reporting Indigenous issues, and I think they would do a good job. I, just in terms of uh, reading, I mean, they have a, a race relations reporter in the US, and reading some of his coverage uh, is quite interesting. And I know that they're keen to look at some of those issues here in Australia, but with the Aboriginal community and the non between the Aboriginal community and the non-Indigenous community. So. Um, I, th I think, yeah, the more the merrier, the more uh, people reporting and getting out into communities or speaking with the Aboriginal community or getting it, um, you know, getting eyes on it, I think uh, the better it will be. And, and also will be sort of a, um, a way of helping lift, I guess, uh, the local, you know, reporting as well. I think competition is very healthy um, and it would be interesting to see you know, what this, this paper's take on, on race relations here in Australia is. Well, we have a, a good range of perspectives here for, for my final question to you all. Australian newspapers have already suffered a loss of readership to the arrival of big international players like The Guardian, like The Daily Mail, as we've been discussing, and BuzzFeed. Do you think that the local Fairfax and Murdoch mastheads can survive? Uh Survive the arrival of the New York Times or survive? <laughs> well, both. I think, um, yeah, as I was saying earlier, I don't think that the New York Times is the death knell for Australian quality journalism. 
I think that there are far more troubling issues for him. So, as I mentioned, the, the whole business model needs to be uh, rethought and rebuilt and very smart people are working on it and they're working on it around the world. Whether or not that works, I don't know. But I don't think that uh, the arrival of the Times is is that great a disruption. Alan? Um, same. I don't think... I, I think, you know... Um, international players coming into the local market, they're not really a threat to local mastheads. I mean, uh, you know, but what local mastheads who are suffering, you know, in terms of subscriptions and their business models can do is maybe learn from, from um, you know, the international players. BuzzFeed has a really unique model. The Guardian has a unique model. So I think um, there is an opportunity maybe for them to, to um, you know, maybe try and alter their their business operations to um, to start making money and and actually you know survive financially. Miriam, any final thoughts? Um, sure. So, so I guess the you know the New York Times is is coming to Australia uh, as a subscriptions focused business. You know what they're after isn't so much to grow readership, which these days is quite difficult to monetize, particularly if you're all around the world, but they, they want to grow. They want to grow subscriptions around the world, including in Australia. And I mean, I, I sort of, you know, as working for a, a publication that also has subscriptions, I kind of don't really love that. I kind of feel like Australians should perhaps support their local players and and subscribe to those. And uh, you know, if given Australians hardly subscribe to anything, it it would be good if they chose to subscribe to to Fairfax or News Corp or, or various other smaller publications. On the other hand, sometimes I think, look, if the New York Times gets people used to subscriptions, maybe maybe what will happen is people will have a local subscription and an international subscription, and maybe as the market matures, that's what will happen. So, I don't know. I kind of I veer between both extremes about whether it's it's good for growing subscriptions or, or bad for it because of those reasons. And that's it from us at Fourth Estate this week. Thank you to our panellists. You can catch us on iTunes and also find us on SoundCloud. Hope to see you next week.